0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last week we looked at Jonah chapter 1. We learned that Jonah was no ordinary book in the Minor Prophets. There's an unexpected plot twist. We saw that the prophet became the rebel in this story. We talked about how everyone goes through storms in life. And these storms are sent by God to test us, to refine us, and to keep us on the path that He has for us. The Bible has a word for this, and it's called discipline. God loved Jonah enough to send a storm in his life, and God loves us enough to send a storm at times, too. Some storms are a result of sin in our lives, and that's discipline, but... Not all storms are a result of sin in our lives. Some are just hardships, suffering sent to test us. And this week, we're going to attempt to make this grand feat of covering the rest of this wonderful little book of Jonah. And of course, I know that two weeks is just not enough time to unpack everything that this book has to offer. But I have some really great news. It's that this book isn't going anywhere. It's going to stay tucked away in our Bibles. Somewhere between Genesis and Revelation, we can always go back and dig up this wonderful little book and ask the Lord, how do you want to speak to me? How do you want to continue to shape and refine me as a follower of you through the book of Jonah? Pretty great, hey? So to start today's sermon, we need to revisit something that we talked about last week, and that is hardship and suffering, because that plays a big role component, that's a big component of this book of Jonah, is what does the Lord want to teach us through hardship? And so I thought it would be really fun. Do you guys want to hear an amusing story to start today off? Amusing story from my childhood? Okay, awesome. I'll give you just a little bit of a glimpse into what I was like as a little boy, okay? And I know that my mom's in the room this morning. So you're going to hear exactly why my mother deserves some sort of medal or trophy. Like, I'm serious, she really does because of what she had to put up with with me, okay? So I'm going to share with you a little bit of a story called Kleenex on fire, okay? I remember it vividly. I was probably eight or nine, and uh, I was sitting in the living room. My mom was uh, sitting in the dining room, and she was on the phone. And this was back in the day, kids, when phones were these strange machines, that were wired into the wall. It was really weird. It was a crazy time, it was a dark time where your phone didn't go everywhere with you. Uh, but my mom's sitting there and she's talking on the phone, and I'm sitting in the dining, or in the living room, sorry, and there's a candle burning. And I am taking my finger, and I'm passing it through the flame. Have you ever done that? And I'm just, in my little eight-year-old brain, I'm like, wow. I can put my finger right through fire and it doesn't burn. Like, that is incredible. That is so cool. And then logically, this next thought followed. I wonder if a wad of Kleenex would do the same thing. (laughs) So, I grabbed a big wad of Kleenex in my hand, I made a ball, and I proceeded to test my hypothesis that Kleenex is going to behave the exact same way as my finger. So, I take this ball of Kleenex and I pass it through the flame. And then I look at my hand, and there's a ball of fire. (laughs) So I completely freaked out, right? Like, oh my word. I stand up, I didn't know what to do, so I just looked at my mom and went, "Ah," and I dropped it on the carpet. (laughs) Because that's what you should do in that case. My mom, what proceeded to happen is my mom obviously frantically dropped the phone, ran over to the dining, or living room, stamped it out. It left a big burn mark in our carpet. Um, and what do you think the first words out of her mouth were? Go to your room. That's right. It's the right thing she should say. That go to your room. So I head up to my room, and I'm like completely jarred. How did that not work? You know where you're like I saw that going so differently in my mind. So I'm in my room, and I'm just waiting, and I'm I'm sweating. My mom's making me wait a little bit. You know the intensity is ramping up, and. Finally, she comes to my room and she does the most brilliant thing ever. I'm surprised I actually haven't stolen it yet. But you know what she said? She says, I'm, I'm very disappointed in you. That was very dangerous. You could have burned down our house. Yeah. She said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get a piece of paper and you are going to write out an apology and you are going to send it to the Steinbeck Fire Department. And I went, oh. No. I'm like an affirmation person. My wife knows this as well. So the fact of having to humiliate myself before these men and and say, hey, this is, I'm so dumb. I just didn't think it would light on fire. So I write this note. You know what I found out years later? She didn't even send it to them. (laughs) That is brilliant. Because I learned my lesson, or did I? So here's the question. Do you remember a time in your life where you've done something dumb and you had to face the consequences? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. Was it Kleenex? Don't put that through fire. Okay, so we go through things like that and hopefully we learn our lesson. But I'm sad to report that sadly I have not learned my lesson with fire. I have this unusual fascination with fire. last year, we had this this old chair, big wooden deck chair that was falling apart completely. And so I'm like, how am I going to get rid of this thing? Like, I don't want to haul it to the dump. So me and the boys in the backyard made a big fire. I just placed the chair right on top of the fire. Next thing I know, we've got like seven-foot flames in like a little backyard. I just love fire. It's cool, okay? So the point is that I didn't learn my lesson. Now that is the segue into, we're going to go back today and look at the book of Jonah. And we're going to look at discipline in his life. Did Jonah learn his lesson? So I really like to start off my sermon by just reading a chunk of the word to you. And because Jonah is a short book, I think we can almost get near to reading the whole rest of the book. So all of you can go home today and brag that you've read almost a whole book of the Bible. It'll be really fun. Okay, I'm going to read to you, starting in Jonah chapter 2, I'll just read a chunk of the story so that we understand God's heart here in what we're going to discuss today. So, now, uh, where, is, where are we going to start here? We'll start chapter 1, verse 16. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, they have just thrown him into the water, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, and he said, in my distress, I called to you, Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, The current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank. To the earth beneath, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up out of the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it this message I give to you. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from greatest to least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in dust." And then this proclamation was issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything, and do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on the Lord, and let them give up their evil ways and give up their violence. And who knows, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw how they responded and that they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. All right, let's go back to the beginning here of chapter 2, and let's work our way through this text. So, it says, Jonah Chapter 1, verse 17 to 2, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord provided a fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So here's a question for you this morning. What is your definition of provision? How are you going to define provision from the Lord in your life? Well, naturally, I would say we all tend to think of provision in terms of the blessings from God. The good things in life, right? Like with a winter, like we've had a warm house to sleep in. Food in our, in our pantries and our refrigerators to eat. Work to go to. Church to have this morning. Etc. All these good things from God, and certainly those things are great. And I would actually argue that all of God's provision is always a blessing if we understand that correctly. However, sometimes God's provision in our lives looks like challenges. And I think that we all need to broaden our perspective when we define what provision from the Lord is. Consider what Job said. Job's a man that went through intense suffering, We've got an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated to telling his story and the hardships that he faced. And Job concluded brilliantly in chapter 2, verse 10, he said, Shall we accept good from God and not also trouble? uh, Jonah's about to understand that God's provision in his life doesn't just look like the good things, the happy times, although that certainly is God's provision. In Jonah's case, though, it was a whale. We need to zoom out for a moment before going any further on this subject, and we need to take a look again at the purpose for hardship in our lives. Because if we are to understand the proper definition of provision, which includes both good and bad, then we need to understand the purpose of hardship. James chapter 1, there's this famous, but I'll be really honest, a very annoying verse. You ever read a passage of Scripture and it's like, oh, that's so true, but that's just annoying me right now. James chapter 1, two to 2-4, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, trials come in many kinds. Not every trial is disciplined, like I said, as a result of your sin, although some of them are, clearly. Some of them are disciplined as a result of our sin, But some trials, some storms are simply a a result of living in a broken world, and suffering is just a part of that. But here's something that Scripture teaches us regardless, because James here is talking about trials of many kinds. He's not being specific, he's just talking about difficult situations that believers find themselves in. Here's what Scripture teaches us regardless teaches us that all trials provide an opportunity for us to grow. In other words, any hardship can be beneficial. James says, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. God is interested in producing fruit in our lives. As a loving Father, He is interested in producing fruit and we like to talk about the abundant life, especially Western believers. We, we latch onto that phrase yes, I want the abundant life. But have we ever con- considered sometimes the abundant life is abundant in hardship? Also, abundant in good things. It's not one or the other, it's both. James says, abundance, some, as in not lacking anything. Let perseverance run its work so that you can be mature and not lacking anything. Have you ever gone through a trial, and despite the pain of the moment, you're able to look back and see the good that God produced from it? I remember, uh, this was two years ago, I think, already. I was with my cell, and shout out to the guys in my cell. I love you guys. Uh, And I remember we were sitting around a, a fire, and we were discussing what would be at the top of your list for the things that have helped you to grow in your walk with God? Just talking about different aspects of the Christian life, what have you found to be uh, the most beneficial for growing in a relationship with God? And I was blown away when these young guys were saying, trials, hardship. When we face difficult situations, it's actually caused me to grow in my faith. And I agree with that many people know this passage in james to be true by experience because we have faced a hardship and we've been made better because of it but there's a warning here there's a warning that i want us to wrestle with and we can see it in the book of jonah this is something that concerns me for my own life and for the lives of the lives of people around me suffering is not a guaranteed method to bring us closer to god In fact, some people will turn away from God or harden their hearts towards Him because of a trial that they're facing. And maybe you've seen that too. Maybe you've watched someone go through something very difficult and you watched them slip into bitterness and anger. They became jaded or maybe you have or maybe you are currently there. You're facing something that It's bringing out this anger in you or frustration within you. And to be honest, I myself am concerned at how I have seen my soul respond to the hardships of the last number of years. There is a tendency for me to lean towards, to drift towards bitterness. You know, Jesus warned about this in Matthew 24, when he's outlining the way that the end of the age will happen. When he will return, and he's warning them, there will be persecution. There will be hardship. And he said, because of the wickedness, hearts of many will grow cold. That's what Jesus said. So yes, it is true that trials can help us to grow in our faith, but the warning is also that it's not a guarantee that they will. While a great many of the most passionate followers of Jesus that I know or that I've read about have all walked through some very difficult times and came out better, it's not a guarantee that you and I will. And I've been studying many passages on the subject of suffering, and I know that all of them point to this fact that hardship and difficulty can be something that the Lord uses to grow our faith, uses to grow our walk with Him, strengthen us. But there's always a stipulation, and that stipulation is how are we going to choose to respond to hardship? How are we going to choose to posture our heart in the middle of a storm? So what James said, he said, consider it pure joy. It actually takes consideration to make it, I'm going to consider this joy instead of I'm going to consider this really bad luck. I'm gonna consider this the worst thing ever. James says, consider it pure joy. That's a choice. It's our response. Now, I'm gonna quote Lecrae because uh, I think that's cool, right? Yeah, let's quote Lecrae. Are we gonna to choose to become bitter or are we gonna to choose to become better? That's the question. Are we gonna to choose to have thin skin and a hard heart are we gonna choose to have thick skin and a soft heart? In the middle of a storm, are we gonna let things get to us easily and offend us, and are we going to turn away from God in bitterness, or are we gonna turn to God in His mercy and allow our hearts to remain soft before Him? Now, I'm not saying, first of all, that it all rests on us. Clearly, it's the Spirit's power. If it were up to us, we'd all become bitter because we actually, we don't contain within ourselves the power to hold fast to Jesus. Those songs that we sang about this morning, it's He will hold me fast. It is His power, but in His sovereignty, the Lord has given us a choice. How are you gonna respond? In humility, to make you better, or in bitterness? I want to go back to this passage in Hebrews. Last week, we read the beginning of this verse where it talked about considerate encouragement that the Lord chooses to discipline us because he's a father and he disciplines his children for their own good. You guys remember that passage? We're going to go back to that passage now and we're going to read the the latter part of it. Just one of the, oh, I love this passage of Scripture. It's Hebrews chapter 12. Today we're going to look at verses 7 to 11, okay? It reads this. Endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as his children. What children are not disciplined by their father? And if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not a legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We're gonna just break down three uh, phrases within this passage, okay? The first one being, endure hardship as discipline. You know what I love about that? that statement? That is an invitation for us to endure any trial that we go through. In the moment when we're facing a storm, don't we often tend to go, is this discipline? Is this the judgment of God? I know, you know, especially when it's on a larger scale, we like to ask that question, is this judgment from God? And I'm not saying that that's a bad question, because certainly we want to consider, hey, is there sin in our lives? Is there something that I want to repent of? But here's the point I want to make. While it could be discipline, What I love about this passage is it simply says endure hardship as discipline. Meaning we have a choice to make no matter what is going on, whether it's just plain suffering as a result of living in a broken world or whether it's discipline. We can choose to endure it as discipline. And what that says to me is... That means God can redeem any trial, any hardship, any difficult thing we go through. God can take what the enemy meant for evil, and he can turn it for good. Amen? means God isn't left empty-handed when we go through a, a trial. He actually says, that is material I can use to build something in your life. That's amazing. So I say, How we respond to this is, yes, it's good to ask the question, is this discipline? Yes, we should search our hearts. We should ask God. We should ask God. This isn't something we do for someone else. We should ask God. God, is this discipline? Is there any error in me? Search my heart, O Lord. And we repent if he shows us anything. We confess our sins. We deal with them. And amen that we can deal with them. But either way, We turn to God and we cling to Him, and we say, please use this hardship to make me better, not bitter." The second phrase I wanna highlight is, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not making light of hardship. God is not asking you to fake a smile when you're going through a storm. God's not saying, put on a brave face. Yes, we choose joy in the Lord, but He's not saying, hide your pain. God isn't looking for people who just bottle it down and pretend it's not there. When we go through hardship, we are allowed to grieve. We're allowed to ask others to pray for us. It's not about weakness is wrong, no, not at all. He says, it's not pleasant, it's not fun. Kind of like when you go to a chiropractor and you know, oh my goodness, he's gonna crush me. But then he does and you're like, oh, that's so much better, right? It's uncomfortable in the moment, and that's okay. And then third, for those who have been trained by it, for those who have been trained by it, again, I say, our response matters. It's not a guarantee that hardship is gonna produce something good in us in the same way as you can buy the most expensive exercise equipment, and it's not a guarantee that you can use it. And please stop chuckling, my wife over there. She knows that I'm guilty of this, okay? I may have had a very nice spin bike that it was great for hanging jackets on. Like the handles on this spin bike were like, I don't need to buy a coat, coat rack anymore. This is perfect. In the same way that you can buy yourself the best exercise equipment or you can hire yourself the best personal trainer, it's not a guarantee. You have a choice. Are you going to use those things? And the author of Hebrews here is saying, those who have been trained by it, it's, it will produce a harvest of righteousness, but you have to participate. You need to respond. But let's go now back to the book of Jonah, and we're going to see how our favorite little asparagus friend here is doing. Shout out to VeggieTales again. You're like, Asparagus tails, okay? Um, we need to go back and we need to see, how, how did Jonah do with this? Jonah chapter 2, he cries out to God. Last week, remember, we talked about, oh, I wish that Jonah would have cried out to God on the boat. I wish he would have. And then we get to Jonah chapter 2 and we see that he does. He responds. He cries out to God. Amazing, right? Problem solved, right? Well, let's see. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, In my distress I called to you. I called to the Lord, and he answered me. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. So this is what we've been waiting for all chapter one. We've been waiting for Jonah to do this. And finally, Jonah has turned towards God in repentance. And we should be happy about this, by the way. That's a good step for Jonah. But notice that that's not where the story ends, okay? As we find out, Jonah is still holding on to something. And I guess you could say that his repentance only went skin deep. His agenda and God's agenda still aren't lining up despite this beautiful prayer. And sometimes I wonder, do we fool ourselves when we cry out to God with these extravagant prayers? I mean, pure poetry. With grateful shouts of praise, I will sacrifice, I will make good on my vow. I mean, the guy had a dynamite prayer. But we see that that's not where his story ends. What happens? Jonah 2, chapter, t- uh, chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited him out. Say that again. It vomited him out. Eek. That is not something I want to imagine. But at this point, aren't we expecting to find a faithful prophet from here on out, right? That's kind of what we're expecting. Okay, he said his prayer. We're ready to see now a faithful prophet of the Lord. And, you know, it makes me think. I'm going to share an illustration, and I think this should connect whether you're a parent or whether you're a child. But have you ever gone on a long drive with your kids? And right away you're like, oh, I know where this is going. Yeah. Okay, so let's say, for, in our case, we're heading to B.C. So wonderful. And guaranteed, you get in the van, you're excited, and you start going. But then there's that first time where you pull over onto the side of the road, Because we need to have a little family chat, okay? You're probably in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan, on the side of the road, and in very nice tones. You explain to your children, we're not going to wrestle. It's not going to be WrestleMania in the back of the sienna. Okay, boys? Yeah, we're going to, like, calm down now. We're going to get along. And they, okay, yeah, yeah, good. But you know deep down in your parenting heart you know there is many more miles to come and much that you must endure. (laughs) You know that, right? You know that this isn't the end of the conversation. You're already bracing for probably, say, an hour. We'll stop again. And kids, you know what I'm talking about. You've been there too. Okay. So that's what we see here. Jonas had his first warning. They pulled over the whale, had a talk. Jonah has said his sorries, and now he's back on on track. But that's not where the story ends. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, again, I'm not sure how you imagine this in your mind. For me, I've somehow always come to the conclusion that Jonah was barfed out of the the whale and he landed right at the gates of Nineveh, right? That's what I imagine, but actually, if you look at the map, that is not the case, unless the whale had the ability to barf him 550 miles, which then, I, I don't know, that is just crazy. But, okay, let, either way, let's just imagine he gets barfed up maybe, let's say, back where he set out to flee from the Lord, back in Joppa. So that still leaves Jonah a journey of 550 miles to walk back to Nineveh. To deliver this message. And I've never considered that. But Jonah had to do the walk. And sometimes we think after we've repented, we just land up, test is over, we've passed, we're good. We said we're sorry, right? Moving on. But just because we turn and say sorry doesn't mean that God circumvents the walk in our lives. One of my favorite quotes, I'll probably share this in many different sermons to come. But I love it. It's a quote by Dallas Willard. And he says this. Grace and effort are not opposites. Grace and earning are. Meaning when we say sorry to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Remember that illustration I gave? When you're walking away from the Lord, when you're on your own spiritual fleeing from God, we turn around And we find out God is right here. We don't have to earn it back with that walk. He's right here with us. That is true. But that doesn't mean that there's not consequences for our decisions. Or that doesn't mean that God is now just going to circumvent the walk. The whale spits Jonah up, and now he has to do the long walk, 550 miles, let's just say, give or take, which is about a month-long walk. Back to, uh, back to Nineveh. And also judging by the text, I'm not convinced that Jonah was suddenly joyful and just so excited that he got to, f- uh, to carry the word of the Lord to the people of Nineveh. The text does say that Jonah obeyed. That's good. That is awesome. Jonah now gets the second chance. He has the word of the Lord and he goes to Nineveh, but it doesn't say anything or give us any indication that he's joyful about it. And so, I don't know, I'm just imagining when Jonah actually gets to Nineveh, if it was more arms crossed obedience-like and less joyfully, with great shouts of praise, I will proclaim that salvation comes from the Lord. I think it was more like this. 40 days, suckas, God's bringing judgment peace, and he walks away. That is my interpretation, what I'm reading here. It doesn't sound like Jonah is just joyful, and these eloquent words. It's simply, 40 days, and then the Lord's judgment is coming to Nineveh, short and sweet, which has got me thinking, you know, well, how do they respond nonetheless to this, arms crossed, potentially, 40 days, you guys are doomed. They respond with absolute total repentance. I mean, it describes for us, everyone is cut to the heart and they go, oh my goodness, we need to repent. And we've got kings and peasants, we've even got cows repenting here. I mean, Jonah's word is just packing a punch. And Nineveh has completely repented. You're starting to see the humor in this book? It's the same thing that we saw with the sailors. Jonah's not trying to lead them to to the one true God. Yet, it's on that boat that those people discover God. It seems like, I'm seeing a theme here, God continues to work despite Jonah. And God is going to continue to work at times despite us. It's got me thinking, how often do we, th- do we think to ourselves, oh, God needs me. Now, oh, of course, we wouldn't say that out loud, but sometimes we feel that in our hearts, don't we? Perhaps God needs me to save that person or to save that group of people, to save my workplace or to be that go-to friend or family member maybe. Or maybe it's, God needs me to be this amazing cell leader, if you're a cell leader in here, or worship leader, or volunteer, fill in the blank, business leader. God, we've this weight, don't we? That God needs us. He needs our words and our strategies to make the difference. He needs the number of our words, or the eloquence of our words, or the creativity of how we can say it just right, We can put it together just right so that the person that I'm listening to will have no other option but to fall to their knees and say, I need Jesus. I need him so badly. I mean, I'm being a little bit dramatic. Maybe we don't actually think this often. But I wouldn't doubt that it has crossed some of our hearts, this idea that God needs me. There's this pressure that I've got to put together the right things to save this group of people, that group of people. We often tend to think that things will happen when our giftedness is maximized, but have we ever stopped to consider that actually God works despite us many times? Despite our weaknesses, despite our bad attitude, despite our arms crossed disobedience, despite sometimes even our sinfulness, it is actually a wonder that God can use any of us to accomplish something according to His will. That is amazing. Even with a good attitude, it's still amazing. So I wanna share with you two simple truths. The first one is God doesn't need us, God wants us. He wants to partner with us. And I went as far as putting a mind-blown emoji in my notes that you can't see, but I can because that is actually mind-blowing, that the God of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into being, the author of creation, the holy God, wants to partner with us. Here is a verse that has always blown me away. Paul, writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. What? It's hard enough to trust a 16-year-old with the keys to your car. The God of the universe considers me, considers you Trustworthy? He knows every single thought that has ever ran through our minds. He knows our motives. He sees our weaknesses, our inabilities. Yet he wants to partner with us. That is amazing. That is mind-blowing. That's the first truth. The second is making an impact doesn't rely on our ability. It rests on his ability. That's the truth. The key to doing ministry, the key to bearing fruit, any fruit, whether it's personally within our heart growing in character, repentance, reaching out to others, the key to being able to do that doesn't rest on our own abilities, but on his. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. This is a famous verse. God, make it fresh in our hearts. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knew that the ability to make an impact in this world, and question, do we need to make an impact in this world? Do we need to be salt and light in this world? Yes, we really do need to be salt and light in this broken world. But may we never forget that our ability to do so does not rest on our giftedness, but on the gift of a Savior, one that not only died for us, but now helps us to live for Him. That's the power of the Christian life. And as in the case of Jonah, he hardly says a thing, and now suddenly this entire city, this great city of Nineveh, responds in complete and total repentance. To a prophet, isn't that what you long to see? Isn't that what you get up in the morning to see? To see a city fall at its knees before a holy God? To cry out to him? You would at least think so. Which brings us to our final point. Jonah's response, yet again, is going to baffle us in this book. How does Jonah respond to this great act of God? He's angry. He's really, really angry. We've been talking about how God's plan and Jonah's plan just never seem to be on the same page. We actually find out that they're not out on the same page. They're not even on the same book. We're about to see clearly what it is that Jonah is so upset about. Why he is so against doing this, being faithful to this word of the Lord to the Ninevites. Let's see it right here. This is Jonah is going to admit it. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow, that's quite a response to this great work of God in the city of Nineveh. And here is why we see, finally, why Jonah is angry, because God is going to forgive his enemies. And that just did not sit well with this prophet. He knew it. He predicted it. Instead of Nineveh getting what it deserves, the predictable is happening according to Jonah, the prophet, the man of God, and God is going to relent and stop from sending judgment on them. In fact, this is exactly why Jonah admits that he chose to flee. It was likely that this thought plagued him all the way, his journey, all the way back to Nineveh. 550 miles he walks, and like a pebble stuck in his Birkenstock. If that's ever happened to you, the sides are designed, they're engineered to get a pebble in there and then you can't get it out, it's the worst but like a pebble stuck in his Birkenstock, the whole way he's walking there, he's going, the Lord is gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he's going to forgive him. I just know it. I just know it. Isn't it true when we quote verses like that about the, the richness of God's love and affection? That's usually something we do in a posture of worship, Right? Jonah here is wrecked by the idea that this verse doesn't just apply to him. It applies to his enemies. So the whole walk there, he must have been plagued by that thought. He knew just how God would respond. He would respond with forgiveness. And that upset him greatly. Now to his defense, maybe for Jonah, it was the thought of his great and holy God being played the fool by this group of wicked people. Maybe Jonah just couldn't handle the thought of the Ninevites tarnishing the glory of God. Such wickedness. And they don't even mean it when they repent. It's just tarnishing my great and holy God, the God of Israel, the one I've given my whole life to. Maybe that was why Jonah was so upset because the name of his God was in question in his heart. But regardless, what are two takeaways to conclude our time together? What are two things that we can take away from this passage? Now, I'll be honest with you. The whole time I thought that point number one, I thought that this was just gonna be how it ended the book. And it's an obvious takeaway that we can have We can't leave the book of Jonah without seeing the Father's heart for his enemies. That the Lord that we serve loves his enemies. If we want to claim the love of Christ in our lives, we have to admit that the Lord loves his enemies. For Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jonah reminds me, to be honest, of the disciples in a way. They too are perplexed by how Jesus said he was going to die. Remember, Peter even pulled Jesus aside and said, Never, Lord, never should you die. He rebuked the Lord. It didn't make sense. It didn't line up in his mind, and it didn't line up in Jonah's mind. They didn't expect the Messiah to die. Surely that wasn't right at the hands of his enemies, and Jonah is thinking here too. Surely this doesn't line up. Jesus modeled to us, though, that he loved his enemies. For while he was on the cross, hanging by three nails, the Savior of the world cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus modeled to us this love for his enemies. The God of the universe said, I love you enough that I would die a sinner's death, though he was perfect, innocent, not deserving to die. And that is how we see the Father's heart on display, that He loves His enemies. Certainly, if you're going to look at the book of Jonah, that is what you've got to come away with, is this call to love our enemies, right? But it was this second point, this second takeaway that stopped me in my tracks this week. So don't forget that. The Father's heart is to love their enemies. But this is how I want to end, when we find ourselves disagreeing with God, we should assume that we are wrong, not him. We need to assume that there must be something not right on our end, not on his end. Jonah 4 verse 1 says, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He's wrestling with this. This doesn't line up. How can these wicked people who have committed atrocities be forgiven like this? And I'll say this, problems come when we try to fit God into our box. When we try by the power of our own intellect and reasoning to make sense of God and put him in a box that fits neatly, it just doesn't make sense. There's a problem with it. You know, I find it ironic that Jonah couldn't grapple with how a holy God could forgive wicked people, while today so many can't grapple with how a loving God could ever judge. So when we find ourselves at odds with God, and he doesn't fit the mold that we think is right, we need to understand it's probably us. We're wrong, not God. It challenges our heart as we see that this prophet was so burdened. This doesn't make sense. It seemed very wrong to him. How often do we find ourselves perplexed by God or even angry with God when we don't get it? Maybe you've been hurt, and you wonder, how could God ever forgive them? That person in your life that's hurt you so badly, you wonder, how could God ever forgive such wickedness cuz you feel it sting or you expect me god to forgive them god that, that just doesn't seem right to me after what they've done i don't want to forgive them or we are res- or we're wrestling with a passage of scripture that speaks about a holy god judging sin and we can't just we just can't seem to wrap our minds around it but you're loving and compassionate How do I reconcile these passages that speak of your your judgment? Or maybe you're in a storm and you ask, where is God? Why is He allowing this to happen in my life? How come a loving Father would let me go through something like this? Whatever it is, again I say, what do we do when we find ourselves perplexed by God? And this is the answer, not a comprehensive one. I'm young and I'm figuring this out, so I say it very humbly. But what do we do when we find ourselves perplexed by God? We choose the road of humility. And we must let God be God and accept that we are not. That if he is who he says he is, the God of the universe, infinite in wisdom, just and loving, slow to anger, compassionate and abounding in love, then we need to trust God to be God, and accept that we are not. Grasping his heart will only come when we choose the road of humility, when we choose to sit in his presence, when the questions don't make sense. It's not that we ignore the questions, but we sit in his presence and go, please, give me wisdom. Give me insight, and teach me your ways, O Lord.